I had sold the future to all of my early employees. And I told them, we can be really big. This can be a really great company. We can be as big as Salesforce. Half of the time I believed it and half of the time I wasn't really sure. (laughs) And so at the day of the IPO, I felt like I had delivered on that promise. And that took a huge weight off of my shoulders. It wasn't like this great point of pride. It was more like, hey, I told you I was going to do this and now I've delivered it for you. And I felt like an immense amount of relief from that. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I don't actually think of myself as that intense because I think, oh, I'm lighthearted. I don't take myself too seriously, but I push really hard. Yeah. One of the things that I think about is what are the symbols and representations that I try and put out of what I want myself to be? And the way that I dress when I was wearing a blazer just fit into this narrative. Of you being intense. Of my intensity. Yeah, yeah. And so whether I was or wasn't, I was still wearing a blazer and I'm always pushing really hard. Yep. And... I don't know if that there's even merit to that or not. I'm pretty sure for me, similarly to that, I want people to know I'm not fucking around. Yes. I'm running a real business. I'm not pontificating about the future of technology. I'm running a business. Yeah. Do you think that people don't think that you're fucking around? Do you think that you ever get misconstrued for not fucking around? <laughs> I'm making sure I never do get misconstrued <laughs> for that. <laughs> no, I don't think people think I'm not taking things seriously, but the jump into a public company, I also wanted to be sure there was no confusion about that. Yeah, I'm not like the hoodie founder who's not intensely focused on the business. In the details. In the details. And I also don't want you to look at my dress and then use it to imply something that's not true about me. Yeah, but you know what strikes me about your outfit, and then we can get off the outfit thing. And, And I guess we're recording now, so for those listening, I'm wearing a hoodie. Henry's wearing a suit. Henry, welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, thank I you. Guess I guess we're <laughs> off into the races. The one thing that strikes me is that, and I've studied you at this point in anticipation of this, and I have a pretty good sense of who I think you are. Not only have I pretty much consumed every media that you've ever done, which is actually quite a bit, and I've also done some very interesting background checks with your board, with people that work for you. There's a lot of themes that kind of come from these things. And what strikes me is that you are quite open, honest, and vulnerable with the things that you've experienced, your emotions, things that leaders generally don't want others to think of them as. Like when you talk about being insecure and you talk about these things that a lot of people feel behind closed doors, you talk about very openly. And so it does surprise me a little bit to be like, hey, I don't want to let my guard down is kind of what I hear. And I don't want anybody else to feel like they can let their guard down. Hence, I want the suit to be a representation of that. But in the other world that I imagine, you didn't strike me that way. So I think it's an interesting, I don't know. I think probably I'm open on things that I feel like I've overcome. And I'm probably less open on things that I'm not sure I've overcome. And so I'm happy to talk about moments where I struggled and then I had an epiphany and realized and moved past it. But I'm probably less open and less transparent about things that I'm like currently struggling with. Mm. So there's like a moment where I realized something about how I felt or that was an emotion that I was having and then got over it or saw the world in a different way or had a new perspective on things. And then I think once I move past those things, I'm really open about them because I feel like that's a way that I used to feel. It's probably the way a lot of people feel. And I moved past it and I want to share that experience. So now maybe using that as the framework for the way that we dress, do you feel like now that you're a public company CEO, okay, reset. Now I am a different type of leader and this business requires a new version of Henry. And because of that, I want to make sure that no one f***ing doesn't take me seriously. I am a public company CEO. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I say this to our teams and I believe it. I'm a great CEO for this business right now 
in this moment. But a quarter from now, two quarters from now, a year from now, I can't tell you with absolute certainty that I'm going to be the best CEO for this business then. The business changes. It changes fast. There are new challenges in the business constantly. There are a bunch of things as a public company CEO I had to learn that I wasn't very good at. And had I not learned those things, I wouldn't be a good CEO right now for the business. And so the success to me always feels fleeting. And if I don't keep up, then it's only going to be here for a moment. And that's actually like a pretty scary thing for me because I'm 38. (laughs) And so to be at what feels like the pinnacle of your professional career at 38, thinking about the future is really daunting because you go, okay, I have to be great at this for a really long period of time because that's the best version of the future that I could see. If at some point in the future, I'm not great at this job and I'm no longer the CEO of Zoom Info and I'm what, 39, 40, 41, what am I going to do? This is like the greatest thing I could have ever imagined for my professional career. And if I don't continually hone my skills and become a better version of myself as a CEO, it may not be here for me anymore. That goes through my mind constantly. What if it's not here for you? Are you going to be like, well, am I going to golf every day? I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I will absolutely do something else. Yeah. I just can't imagine it's as awesome as this job. Yeah. Well, you have a pretty good job. I would love to start from the beginning when you didn't have this awesome of a job, yeah. if that's okay with yeah, you. Absolutely. Can we take it from the top? Yeah. Okay, cool. So I say I start, we're 10 minutes in, but I start all these episodes the same way, which is I read my guest backgrounds back to them. In this case, I think the majority of this conversation is going to really be focused around one job that you've pretty much had most of your career, but there's a few interesting things that happen along the way. So let me read this to you. Hopefully I don't screw it up too bad. You went to UNLV in Vegas. I think you you spent four years there. You got your bachelor's. Then you were at a company during that time called iProfile, which was a small little startup. Then you went to get your law degree from Ohio State. I think they'd want me to tell you it's the Ohio State. The Ohio State. (laughs) I was born in Ann Arbor. And so you're working to get your JD there. And along the way, you were still working at iProfile. Then you started a company in 2007 that you catapulted off of the experience that you had at iProfile called Discover.org. You were the CEO and co-founder of that starting in May of 2007. In February of 2019, Discover.org bought a company called ZoomInfo, and then you became the CEO of new entity ZoomInfo, which I'm sure a lot of people get messed up on. That We changed the name of the company after the we bought it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this company, for those that don't know, ZoomInfo is a $20 billion market cap business today, was at almost 50 during the heydays of whatever the hell the last six months have been. Can you, in 30 seconds or less, what does ZoomInfo do? So what ZoomInfo does is it helps sellers, marketers, and recruiters identify their next best customers. It helps them engage with their next best customers. It does that through a combination of a really robust data asset of 150 million business professionals, 100 million companies, and then layered on top of that, insights that come off of that data asset with technology that helps you engage with your buyers. So if you're a marketer, the ability to build a B2B audience and then target them on the display ad network. If you're a salesperson, the ability to build an audience and do sales automation against them, and then a variety of other technology and software that's been built on top of that data asset. Persian? I am Persian, yes. I'm very proud to be in a room with a fellow Persian. <laughs> you were born in the States, correct? Yes. Your mom immigrated here? Yep. Was she escaping the revolution or like the lead up to it? I think she came here before the revolution. Before. I don't think she knew. What was about to happen? Yeah. So you grew up in SoCal. Growing up, your mother raised you, right? Yep. She was working like three jobs. Yep. How was that, watching your mom do that? Work was a really important thing to my mom. And she always worked really hard. She always had multiple jobs. I didn't really think about it like my mom needed multiple jobs to support us. I always felt like my mom wanted to work really hard to get herself to the next stage in life or to move herself forward. But she was always incredibly hardworking and I'm sure that that instilled a hard work ethic in me along the way. Yeah, I mean, three jobs is no joke. Yeah. You have a daughter today? Yep. Married? Married. Live in uh, Vancouver, Washington. Yep. 
What I was excited for, particularly in this episode, is that you remind me of my friends and I. And there is something very relatable to that. And, and I'll even take that a step further. That's the point of this show. That is the point of this podcast. We are not very different. And neither are we and the other guests that I've had. And you don't have the Stanford degrees. And you don't have the sexy college educations and all the jobs and all that stuff. Your mom worked three jobs. I really enjoyed that process of getting to know you. Yeah, well, when we first met, you told me that the thing about me that we had to try to get across here, so it's still incumbent that we get it across. Was that? Was when you look at your LinkedIn profile, Henry, you don't feel very relatable. <laughs> and you said to me, what? Why? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what did I say? I said, because you're the fucking CEO of a $20 billion company. Yeah. And then I think you got it. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> I think anybody who knows me yeah. doesn't feel that way yeah. about me. Yeah, but the reality is not many get to know you. Yeah, that's Not true. many get to know you. And even more so, there's a lot more people that want to aspire to the career path that you have that don't get to know you. Yep. And so all they get to see or hear are the podcasts that you do and the resumes that you put on LinkedIn, right? Yep. And so I think there's so much more nuance and color that's missing from that. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to start at... I profile because I think it's very informative to what ended up ultimately happening sure. with Zoom. Yeah, so went to college in 2001. Um, my mom gave me $5,000, which was my college fund, which was essentially the remnants of this life insurance policy she had been putting $100 a month into basically our whole life. And so I took the $5,000, went off to UNLV. After my first year in the dorms, I ran out of money. We were moving out of the dorms. I had no money for rent. I had no money for anything. I actually sold my PlayStation on eBay. I had 300 bucks, enough to pay for my first month of rent. And then I went searching for a job and I applied everywhere in Las Vegas. And I landed at this company called iProfile. So again, at this point it's 2002. And they were selling a SaaS subscription to an online database of information technology decision makers and information technology research on companies. I had no idea what that meant, right? I was not even 20, I was 19. And I remember he said, look, we got to find all of the VPs who work at these different companies. And I was like, the VPs, there's more than one VP. <laughs> thought it's like president, vice president, and then the Directors, rest of the people, yeah. <laughs> like the government. He's like, no, that's not how corporate America works. And so here I am like trying to figure out all of the stuff. What was interesting about that business is I got there, it was me and the founder, it was a $300,000 ARR lifestyle business. And between 02 and 06, we grew it to 5 million of revenue. And then at the end of 2006, I said, hey, I'm going to go to law school to my boss. My boss said, hey, I want to make you a millionaire in a couple of years here at iProfile. I'm going to make you CEO of iProfile. I'm going to pay $400,000 a year to do it. Stay instead of going to law school. I said, okay, well, what does being CEO of iProfile mean? Because at this point, we're $5 million of revenue and $4.8 million of profitability. And said, can I build a team? Can I build a sales team, a marketing team? Can I get an engineering team going? It's like, no, I'm still going to make all of those decisions, but you'll be the CEO. I was like, okay, well, that's not a real thing. So I'm going to go to law school. So I left, I went to law school. And after my first year in law school, at the end of my first year, a friend of mine who I had recruited at iProfile called me and said, let's start something that's like iProfile, but doesn't compete directly. And actually, my first response to that was, no, I'm not interested. I'm doing well at law school. And I went to law school mainly because I thought it gave me credibility in a way that other education wouldn't. And so I said, I want to finish this law school thing. Your Persian mother yes. would want you to be a lawyer. I think I saw every lawyer as esteemed mm. and honorable. And I was like, I should get that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so anyways, we started Discover Org in 2007. And I put $25,000 on my credit card. My co-founder put $25,000 on his credit card. And we started building this product. Incredible. Six months in, you'd find a company called Rain King. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. You find out that Rain King basically is Discover Org. Yep. Right? Yep. I still remember exactly where I was. Where were you? I was sitting on the downstairs couch in my law school apartment. And you looked at your co-founder and said, Fuck, Yeah. we didn't see this one coming. Yeah. I just thought, what are we going to do? 
this thing is real. I know it's real. I had seen a lot of companies claim to do what we did, but this was very clearly not the same as those. And they were venture back. They had a senior management. Yep. All the things that you were probably insecure that you didn't have. hundred percent. I remember using both of them when I was in the startups. Yep. So you and your co-founder decided that idea. Maybe I should go back to law school. Yep. Let's try and sell the business to them. Yep. What happened? We were about a $300,000 ARR business at this point. In our first year, we did about $300,000 of Pretty revenue. good. Pretty good. First year? I was pretty proud of that track record. In today's standards, it's still pretty good. Yeah. First year? Our first deal, we sold to a publicly traded staffing company called Comsys. And I remember being at home at my mom's house during Christmas vacation in law school and calling the procurement department <laughs> of the company because they hadn't paid us yet. And saying like, oh, uh, yeah, excuse me, I was checking on the status of uh, PO17894. You know, we had like fake PO numbers. And uh, like, when is this going to be paid? And they told me on the phone, like before Christmas, like, yeah, this check is being cut like the first week of January. I was like, oh, my God, we're actually going to make $15,000. So six months in, we have $300,000 in revenue. And we decide to reach out to Rain King and say, hey, do you want to buy our business, basically? Uh, and they actually had reached out to us and said, hey, we'd love to talk to you about partnerships. And we turned around and said, hey, we're not really interested in partnerships, but do you want to acquire the business? They said, okay, we'll come to Maryland and have a conversation with us about it. So we got in the car, we went to DC, we met with the CEO, the CFO, the head of sales, and we did a whole day of meetings. And at the end of the meeting, the CEO goes, you know, there's just not really a business here to buy. You guys don't really have a business. You have an interesting process that's gathering some data, and then you have some customers, but it's not really a business to buy. We had gone in that meeting going, if they offer us $1.7 million, sell this business today. That was the watermark. That was the watermark, yeah. It was actually two, but then we were like, yeah, but 1.7 <laughs> would probably do a deal. Obviously, that didn't happen. He basically told us, we're not gonna buy the business but why don't you license us your data collection process? We were like, well, you have all of these people who are just going to run right over us if we tell you how we're collecting data and the, the like. Because that was a little bit of the secret sauce of what you're doing. Yeah, at Which, the time, by the way, was it even that secret? It was it just was, a lot of manual work. It was just a lot of manual work. Yeah. 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 And so we walked away from that and drove back home. I got a speeding ticket on the way home. This is a very negative trip. And I just said like, we've got to beat these guys. I don't know how, and I don't know how long it's going to take, but we have to beat these guys. Five years later, you acquire that company. Yeah. Right? Well, it feels short when you say it like that. How fucking good did that feel um, for someone competitive? <laughs> Come on. You know, the thing about these things is by the time it's actually happening, so much has already moved in. Isn't it weird? Like you've already renormalized what the new normal should be. Yep. So when you get to that point, you're like, Pfft. Ranking. If we're not Twilio by the time totally. this thing's over, yeah. what are we talking about? By the time we acquired it, there was this whole operating plan you had to nail. And so it wasn't like, hey, you bought the business, fireworks went off. It was like, hey, you bought the business, and now you had to go run against this operating plan that cut costs and grew revenue. You had to bring the two companies together, and you had to do it in a short period of time. And so there was like not a lot of time for celebration. And it I don't want to say didn't feel good, but it didn't feel like you think it's gonna feel. Never does. Yeah. Have you ever paused for celebration? I was pretty happy on the day we IPO'd. Yeah. And really because, and I don't know if it was for celebration, but it was definitely that I felt like I had sold the future to all of my early employees. And I told them, we can be really big. This can be a really great company. We can be as big as Salesforce. Half of the time I believed it, Half of the time, I wasn't really sure. <laughs> and so at the day of the IPO, I felt like I had delivered on that promise. And that took a huge weight off of my shoulders. It wasn't like this great point of pride. It was more like, hey, I told you I was going to do this, and now I've delivered it for you. And I felt an immense amount of relief from that. That's a way that many, many of my guests describe accomplishment. It's not even proud. It's relief. Yeah. It is a weight off their shoulder, which is kind of sad. Yeah, really totally. Think about it. One of your employees who's worked for you for over 10 years, he's a senior leader in your company. He was telling me how Henry would always tell us when we were nobody, when we were nothing, that we're going to build a billion dollar revenue company one day. 
And we would all roll our eyes and just be like, okay. But over time, he just kept telling us it. And he created this blind organizational faith where we weren't even sure it was going to actually happen. But we thought, you know what? It's worth trying for it. He said, God damn it, we are. We basically are. That's just so cool. That must be so cool. And I imagine when the IPO day happens and you deliver on your promise, you're not delivering on your promise to those employees. Those employees, their lives are changed. They're delivering on a promise to their family, all the work that they've been doing, all the sacrifice that I'm sure you appreciate and know that they've been making. Yep. I think that is the weight off your shoulder. Totally. Is that fair? I gave a speech and I got really emotional that night. And the big part of that speech for me was it was like the early employees and their spouses. And I knew that over the last 10 years, these people had spent more time focused on making this business successful than they had spent with their families, with their kids, with making their marriages successful. They had woken up every day thinking about Zoom Info and how do I make it better and how do I give more to the company? And so a big part of that relief is in fact going like, that sacrifice wasn't for nothing. And I know there were mornings and evenings where your husbands and your wives were working all night and that was frustrating and hard for you, but we delivered on what we said we would deliver on in repayment of all of that sacrifice. So cool. Previous guest of the show, a fellow named Tom Mendoza was the president uh, of NetApp. NetApp. Yeah, you know Tom, know Tom yeah. yeah. Legend. Yeah, totally. absolute legend. Greatest storyteller about sales and business. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. It's savant-like. He was telling me a story about how at President's Club, every year, all the guys, all the people on the team go golfing. It was all mostly guys on the sales team, especially in, in the older days. And he said, I would never go golfing. I would be with their wives, wherever they were, by the pool, on the beach, wherever it was, because they're the ones that are making the hidden sacrifices that we don't see, that are paying a hidden tax that we don't know about. We all know what you and I are doing and we're compensated for it and we all get to be a part of the war room together and hard things are worth doing because you're doing them with people. But there's other people that are in their lives that are also doing the hard thing, but not getting to appreciate doing it with other people. Yeah, not feeling the accomplishment the same way. I think also I know my team's spouses and I know the ones who are there supporting them and giving them the right talk track to think about in their minds. And I know the ones that when like going gets tough, they're like, why do you even work at that place anymore? And so I'm really appreciative of the ones who are standing behind their spouses and really pushing them to become more and achieve more because it shows up at work. Know the difference. Yeah, that must have been really special. I heard that for... The first seven years, you were carrying a bag. Carrying a bag meaning selling. Mm -hmm. And one of the other themes that kept popping up about you was that you were very demanding, but you never asked people to do something that you weren't willing to do. When you carried the bag, was that kind of going back to the metaphor of wearing what clothes you're wearing? Was that to show the organization that you're also willing to get right there with them, shoulder to shoulder? Or how'd you think about that? Because that's uncommon, just to be clear, like for seven years. Yeah. I think in the early days, it was just my responsibility to sell the product that we were building. And then I think over time, I was pretty good at selling. Like I wasn't a bad seller. I had, at the time that I stopped selling, had the biggest deal in our company's history. You put yourself on the leaderboard. Yeah, I put myself, of course I put myself on the leaderboard. Give yourself a quota too? We didn't really have quotas then. We were just kind of running fast. And no quotas, no quotas in the early days. Yeah, yeah. We didn't really know how to run a sales team, what a quota really meant. Everybody yeah. has quotas today, yeah. but back yeah. then we didn't really know. When I was building the sales team, I remember the people that we hired in the early days. One comes to mind. He comes in. I hire him. He's right out of college. He sits down. I go, OK, here's your laptop. Here's your stuff. Open up Outlook. That's where you're going to get your emails. He's like, what is Outlook? I was like, what do you mean? What is Outlook? Microsoft Outlook. Like, I have no idea what that is. He's like, oh my God, we are really starting at step one of this whole thing. He's going to soon ask me the, I thought there's only vi one vice president question. <laughs> <laughs> and in order to coach and train that team, I had to be in the room with them selling. 
And they actually made me much better at sales. Like uh, eventually they got better at sales than me. And we all sat in this one corridor. It's kind of like five offices and we could hear each other on calls. So I would tell the team like, look, every call you have to ask for next steps. I know it's uncomfortable at the end of every call. You go, how about we follow up on Tuesday or tomorrow? Always set a next step at the end of your call. And I was just like reading books about sales and then regurgitating it mm-hmm. back to them. <laughs> like watching Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Tell you it's like reading the little red book of selling by Jeffrey Gittimer <laughs> and then turning around and reselling that. You feel like a fraud like in doing that. But then they started doing these things that are sales best practices. And so everybody just got better by just committing to doing the things that great salespeople did. And so I just stuck in there and continued to sell. And it's very hard to bullshit me when I'm actually selling the same product that you sell. Did you, in those days, they call it earlier days, did you ever think the company was going to die? Oh, yeah. Yes. By the way, I worry that the company is going to die every day like today. today. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in the early days, I think I worried, you know, I don't know, Jubin, if I worried about whether the company was going to die. I, I think I worried that whatever moment we were in was going to be the best moment of the company's life so that the company wouldn't ever reach beyond that moment. It couldn't achieve its potential, essentially. And so that was more of the fear. Is this it? I really don't want this to be it. I think we can be bigger. I think this can be better. Is this it? You know, a year later, is this it? I hope this is not it. I think we can get bigger and better. I never thought it would go away, but I worried that it could stop growing. Do you look back on those days in the five hallways that you guys were all squished together in, learning from each other fondly? Are you nostalgic about those days? Are you like, those days? Like these days are way better. It's a mix of both. I look at those days and go, what a really great experience. None of us had kids. We were totally just committed to this job. We didn't have really any outside responsibilities. And so we're all in on just building this business together. That was amazing. But then I also look back and go, nobody really trusted me those days. They came in and they did their job. They didn't really believe that I was going to build a billion dollar company. You were what, 30? Yeah, maybe a little younger than that, 28, yeah. 26, when yeah. they first came in. I started the company when I was 23. Yeah. So the first group of real hires, I was probably 27. Yeah, probably because you're like running to your office, reading the book, taking the quote <laughs> out of it, and then running back out to the team. <laughs> it, was, it was a hidden process. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So I guess there's a couple things. One, in 2014, you end up taking your first funding round yep. from TA. How much revenue was the business doing at that point? It was like $25 million of ARR. Your first six months, you did 300K. Mm-hmm. But from 300K to 25 million took another six years. Is that right? Yeah. That's not that fast. It's not very fast. Like in, in today's day and age, that's slow. Yeah, it's slow, but it is efficient because we weren't flush with capital. Right. And so- Those at, were the days where efficiency actually mattered. It's starting to matter again. It might actually be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we didn't have a ton of capital to grow the business. And so it was slower that way. And then two and a half of those years, I was either in law school or taking the bar exam. And so there were like, fits and starts to the business. You could see like the three months I went to study for the bar exam, the business basically didn't sell anything. So there were like limiters built in. Mm -hmm. If you looked at it on paper, it kind of went like 300,000 in the first year, 800,000, 2.7 million, five and a half million, 15 million, 35 million the next year. So it feels pretty fast. Did it feel slow for you then? Or did it feel like, whoa, this thing's going? It felt slow. And do you think it felt slow because Tom Mendoza's company, NetApp, went three to 25 the first year? Yeah. So the same years that we were growing the business that way, everybody was talking about Box and Dropbox. Right. This was early SaaS. Early SaaS. Yeah. Yeah. And we just kind of felt like not a real player there. Redheaded stepchild. Yep. Couldn't get the venture money. Yep. Didn't have the MBAs. Weren't based in the Bay Area. Always cast in the shadow of some of these other companies. Yep. Profitable. Why were we doing that? Why were you doing that? Because if you took venture money too early, do you think that would have changed the way that the business would have been operated? Yes. Yeah. Totally. And was that a strategic decision that you made at that point? No. It's just by the time we were 25 million, we're 50% 
EBITDA margins. And the people who buy 50% EBITDA margin businesses are private equity firms. They're not right. venture capital firms. Right. In fact, like we went and pitched Andreessen Horowitz right after TA came in. And they were like, no, that's just not enough software. It doesn't fit their mental model. Yeah. Speaking of TA, in 2014, you sold, this was surprising to me, you sold 50% of the business, right? Mm-hmm. For 90 million, this is all public. Uh-huh. It was a $275 million valuation. 275. Yeah. But you sold 50% of you it. sold 50% of Why it. Why so much? That's what TA wanted to acquire. Okay. And you were solely focused on longevity of the business. Yeah. I think going into that moment, we did view it as the celebratory moment where all of the work of starting a business finally paid off. It's easy to armchair quarterback it now when it's a $20 billion company, et cetera. But at the time it wasn't that. This is life-changing money Life-changing money. Life-changing. Like your mom can stop working, like all these things. Yep. I asked someone on your team, what's the most uneasy you've ever seen Henry in his career? The answer was, right before you took the round from TA. Yep. Why do you think that is? (laughs) I think it's probably because you knew you were going to take money from this firm, but you didn't really understand what that meant. And there were all of these legal clauses that said, if you didn't disclose this or you didn't do that, that they call claw back the entire amount. And I think we were just really uneasy about the idea that you were giving me money and I was going to start spending that money, and then you could just come back and get it all. And I didn't really know how big of a risk that was or wasn't. If I miss my numbers, are they going to claw back all the money that they just gave me? And you had lawyers who told you, yeah, that's not something to worry about, but you felt really uneasy about taking the dollars, and then somehow those dollars not actually being yours. Yeah, and at that point, someone from TA came onto your board, or you made a board, right? Yep. And the, really, the board's only job is to hire or fire you. Yeah. Right? Yep. So in some way, it's like, well, did I just sign up for my own inevitability here? First of all, when someone gives you $90 million and you're 30 years old, yeah. you also are just kind of like, well, if they fire me, they fire me. Right. Yeah, I got $90 million. Right. That's how I felt at that stage of the game. And then the board came in and... There were times where they were like really informative and guiding us. And there was times where I was like, I hate this board. I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) There was this great moment with the guy who ran sales for me for many years. We were like walking to get coffee. And I did this very stupid thing that I think younger entrepreneurs do where I went, you know what? They don't like it. Tell them to get someone else. They just get someone else. I don't care. Like, good luck getting another CEO to do this job. It's your pride talking. Yeah. And my VP of sales was like, why would you be like a martyr about this thing? That doesn't help anybody. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't really help anybody. And so figure out how to work with the board. So in talking to the board, I asked them, I said, what was your interpretation of this business? How did you evaluate this 28, 29-year-old guy who has built this interesting but not gargantuan company yet, they kind of gave me a laundry list of things that were hairy, you know? (laughs) It it wasn't obvious. It was small TAM. The database was built manually by people like crawling around, cold calling and getting the data in there. Going horizontally across more use cases was not clear. There was not a ton of seasoned executives that you would typically think would be in a company of this size. There were none. There was none. (laughs) (laughs) You hired a bunch of your friends in some cases. You hired a bunch of people that you just needed people at that point. Again, it wasn't in the Bay Area. It's profitable, which somehow was a ding on you, right? Because when someone says it's profitable, that means you're not growing ahead of yourself fast enough, right? You're not investing ahead of the company at the pace that you should. So I just said, dude, okay, like, why'd you invest? And they said, we invested because of Henry. And I said, well, what about? And he said, he didn't want to lose. He just couldn't fathom the idea of losing. And they said specifically, his quality bar and drive was quite literally second to none. We've never seen anybody like it. I thought that was really cool. I think I know a lot of people that have this drive. I got to be honest. I think there's a lot of people that are very, very driven. Totally. And also hate losing. Mm -hmm. What I don't think there is a lot of people that are willing to do, in my opinion, is have a pain tolerance for the time and duration that you have had 
to be willing to keep a bar as high as it's been. And when you do that, it's hard. Yep. Across the organization, over and over again. That's what I think is the secret sauce here. Totally. Do you it agree? 100%. I wake up every day fixated on the things that are not going right in the business. I cannot shake them. I think about them when I work out. I think about them when I shower. I think about them on the drive into work, the drive home from work. They obsess my thoughts. And that's all I think about. And until those areas are fixed or there's a strategy and plan in place for them to be fixed, all I do is fixate on the bad things. It's an inability to be content that makes you successful. And I would say an ability to get the people around me to be okay with that. Because what happens at first, like when we acquired Zoom Info, my CTO, first day I met my CTO in this new, just $800 million acquisition. The engineering team is great. My engineering team's no good. First day I meet him, he's like, hey, I just want to let you know I quit. It's like, okay. No, you're not quitting. So first of all, that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 I'm quitting. So we should figure out a way for, okay, how long? And he was like, I don't know, like a month? And I was like, no. Six months, minimum. And then we can figure it out at six months. It's like, let me buy myself some time to make sure this guy likes working here and we'll stick around. And he got over that once we sort of came in and he saw that we weren't fakes, basically. But then over the next year, all I did was go, this is not good enough. This is not good enough. This is not good enough. What about this area of the business? It's not good enough. You have to fix this. Why aren't you fixing this? You have to fix this. The reality of the situation is I knew he could fix those things. I knew he was capable of fixing those things. I just didn't think he was focused on those things or he had made excuses for them along the way that he had put way back in the back of his mind and I was just pulling them forward. And so we had a tough relationship for two years. And then right around two years, he like got it. And we actually ended up with the same executive coach. <laughs> and the executive coach told him, don't you realize Henry is telling you these things because he knows that you can help him solve those problems. He just wants you to be better. He's not telling you these things to tell you you're not doing a good job. He's telling you these things because he believes you can be doing more and be doing better. And if you look at it through that lens, you can have a much better relationship with Henry than what you have today. And I've literally gone through that with every single one of my direct reports. You actually kind of remind me of Mendoza, but he talks about injecting tension into the organization. He believes that his job is to inject tension into the business. And he told a story about how 3 to 25 goes to Sequoia and basically thinks he's going to get the roses thrown at him, like taking his victory lap. And he gets on and he has basically two slides, 3 to 25. This is how many people we hired. This is what we're going to do next year. Any questions? Great. Expecting kind of the standing O. The partner at Sequoia who was running the firm at the time went to one number. It was like something about CAC or something, something completely innocuous that made no sense and drilled him on it for 40 minutes straight. And he walked out and he was like, what the hell was that? You know, so he goes to another partner, Roloff, who's now running the firm and was like, what did I just miss? And the other partner says to him, dude, you don't think that we know you're doing well? Do you not think that we have a pretty good idea of how this business is doing? Our job is to inject tension in the organization when things are going great and when things aren't, it's to support you. And this kind of sounds like that. It seems obvious, but most people do the opposite, which is that when things are going super well, they're cheering for you, they're telling you how awesome you are. And when they're not, they come down your street. The guy who's our chief revenue officer today, his name's Tim Strickland. He came to us from Marketo where he ran a, an enterprise sales team. And his first quarter in, it was a great quarter. They delivered their number. They over-delivered on the retention number. And we do a quarterly business review where we go over all of the numbers from that quarter. He walks into this thing, same thing, thinks he's the champion. Everyone's just going to high-five him. And we get into it. And there are a bunch of areas of the business that are not improving the right way, where we don't have the right metrics that I'm poking at and demanding a response to. And we finish. He gets up. And we're walking out of the conference room together. And he mumbles to me on the way out. He's like, well, you're welcome for the great quarter. And I was like, well, welcome to Zoom Info, Tim. This is the way it's going to be every single month, good or bad. We're going to go into that meeting and we're going to find things we're not doing well. And we're going to demand that we get better at those things. And he was like, yeah, OK, got it. <laughs> and that was it. Like now he still works for you. Still works for me. It got promoted twice. And he's a great employee. The morning after you close the investment with T.A., 
You have more money than you've ever had, that you probably ever thought you would have, and you sent a picture to the guy that did the deal. And you said, this is what being rich looks like. And it was a selfie of you sitting in the middle seat of coach. Yeah. I said, this is what success looks like. That's right. <laughs> That's, you did that? Yeah. I flew coach across the country, I think on a red eye to meet with clients in New York where I slept on my law school roommate's couch. I mean, I go back to never ask somebody to do something you wouldn't otherwise do. Absolutely. The day of the most important event to this point of the company where it's actually legitimized, which is all you've wanted your entire career is to be legitimized. And you have a firm like TA that comes in and gives it to you. You immediately have renormalized it immediately. And you're like, wait a second, just getting started. Yeah. The interesting thing about that, Jubin, is I didn't feel legitimized there or with Carlisle or with the Zoom Info acquisition. The monetary side of this equation the job is great and it gives you all sorts of monetary rewards, but they never felt like professional validation. And so, yeah, I made a bunch of money at the TA acquisition. Carlisle came in for a secondary a few years later. I made a bunch of money there, but I never felt like I was being professionally validated. The biggest gift from the IPO was I felt professional validation for the first time in my career. It felt like, okay, this is a real notch of professional validation. It's understood around the world. This is something that is worthy of your resume, <laughs> your professional resume. I had been really financially successful up to the IPO. I'd never had the professional validation that that gave me. In August of 2017, you acquire ranking. And by other people's standards, this is when you started mopping up the industry by having a lot of leverage. Because now all of a sudden there was much less competition and less players in the space. This time I asked your board member, what's the most anxious you've ever seen? <laughs> Henry. <laughs> Lo and behold, what does he say? It's the morning before you bought Ranking, which he described as a very game-changing acquisition for the business. He said the day before you're having lunch and you were freaking out, sweating, I asked him, why do you think that is? And he said, well, I don't know, but I suspect that it has something to do with the fact that he's built this amazing organic business up until this point that was pretty much all in his control. And I think he knew things were about to change precipitously around the expectations of the business and what his scope of responsibility would be. What were you thinking? Do you remember this lunch? Yeah, I had a pan like, was literally in the middle of a panic attack when I had lunch with him. And what do you mean? couldn't breathe completely like properly and I couldn't take deep breaths and I was just really nervous and anxious about the next day we were taking over the company we had taken over their offices over the weekend they didn't know and they were going to all come in the next day and the competitor that they've been beating up on every day for a decade was going to walk in and say hey we acquired this business and now we're all discover org and by the way at the same time it doesn't make sense to have all of you anymore because there's a whole bunch of duplicative work that's being done. And so half of you are gonna get laid off today. The other half, I'm sorry your friends aren't gonna be here anymore, but I really need you to buy into this future vision. And so you, it was really a nerve wracking. And they hate your guts already. And they hate my guts. And then I just fired a bunch of their friends. And then right after that, I have to go, hey, but you guys, you're incredibly special and come on this ride with us. We're going to take over the industry and there's nothing but upside for us. And if they didn't buy into that, the whole model broke down. And so you've got a hundred people. Yeah, you'd be a fraud. Yeah. And by the way, in doing that acquisition, we put $300 million in front of all of the shareholders with debt because we made the acquisition with debt. And so all of a sudden, the whole return that we had worked up to that point, four years to build up was at risk. So it's like, I could have walked away from this thing with a 5X return for TA. People would have patted me on the back and said, hey, great work. And instead we put Rain King in front of it. And if tomorrow doesn't go well, that was a terrible decision. An existential threat to the business. It felt like an existential threat. To the, the one business. that's have been keeping you up pretty much the entire time felt the most real that it probably could have at that point. Yes, for sure. You think that was your lowest point of closing the Discover Org chapter. Discover Org was basically at that point done. It was now going to be Zoom Info together, right? The name changed. Would you say that was the lowest point? I think actually the lowest point was 
Less than a year later, so we convinced the board to make this ranking acquisition. We did it. We brought the Carlisle Group in kind of five months later. The Carlisle Group had done this big consulting engagement with one of the big consulting firms where they looked at the market and they try to understand where Discover Org was in relation to Zoom Info or DNB or other players in the market. And the consulting study was like, Discover Org is way ahead of everybody. And I knew kind of in the back of my mind that Zoom Info was going to be a meaningful threat to the business going forward. The minute you got rid of the number two, there was going to be a vacuum for the next number two. And people would want an alternative to any product that's out in the market. And so it elevated Zoom Info. At the same time, Zoom Info went from being founder-led to bringing in a professional CEO. I knew it was going to be a threat to the business. And Carlisle comes in with this report that says Zoom Info is not a threat. And like, what do you think? I was like, yeah, that sounds right. And almost three months later, I went on a customer trip. I went to- But you knew in the back of your head. I knew it was a threat. Yeah. 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 I didn't know how long. I didn't know how long before it really manifested. But three months later, I went on this customer trip to Utah. I met with six clients. Every single one of them said, hey, we love Discover Org. But it doesn't go deep enough or broad enough, so we use ZoomInfo. And by the way, ZoomInfo is pretty good. Next one, same thing, same thing, same thing, same thing. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so screwed. They're in all of our accounts. And it's just a matter of time before these guys go, well, we got to pick one or the other. Which ones do you guys like? And people were going to say, like, ZoomInfo is pretty good and it's broader and has more data than Discover.org does. And so I had to go back to the board and convince them to buy ZoomInfo. And so I'm back in the board meeting in September of that year, and it's the Carlisle folks, the TA folks, and my executive team, and we're doing the strategic session, and I'm trying to get them to agree we should go out and acquire Zoom Info. And there's this moment in the meeting where the sort of the lead director from TA comes over to me, and he's like, so we got to go fucking buy Zoom Info, huh? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, we should go do that. I was like, we should go do that. We should definitely go do that. Great idea. We should definitely go do that. <laughs> and then we went and did that. How much bigger were you than Zoom Info at the time? When we made the acquisition, we were like 170 million of ARR and Zoom Info was like 105. Not that much bigger. Not that much bigger. Way more profitable. We were running a much more efficient business. We were growing slower, but much more efficiently. Zoom Info was growing faster with kind of break-even margin. You're the founder and CEO of Discover.org. It's your baby. Did you think there was more brand equity in Zoom Info? Not that I think. We did studies that made it very clear that there was. Their marketing was just better. They were doing more marketing. Yeah. They had better brand awareness. And Discover.org was a niche provider. And so it sold to basically companies that sold to IT departments. Yeah. And Zoom Info, when you brought the two companies together, you unlocked a much larger total addressable market. And when you went and looked across the broader total addressable market, three times as many people knew Zoom Info than knew Discover.org. By the way, Discover.org is also a pretty crappy name. No one ever got it right. They called it Discover, Discovery, Discover.org. So it was a pretty good opportunity to get a better name in the process. Some people never forgave me for that, by the way. They like, can't believe we did that. Like you sold out. Like I sold out. I'm here to run a great business. Right. And there is no objective reason that we would keep the Discover Org name. Everywhere you look, it tells you that the Zoom Info name is better for the future of the business. So like, I don't care. This isn't about the dumb name I came up with in my car in law school. Yeah. It's about the best name for this business going forward. In June of 2020, you took the business public. So COVID hit in mid-March. Things started shutting down mid-March. Was this the first IPO that actually happened? It was Warner Music was the day before. Okay. And this was the first technology IPO of the pandemic. <laughs> what did it go public at? It was $21 a share. So yeah. It's kind of like an $8 billion valuation. $8 billion. At the peak during COVID, it went up to 50-ish billion. Now it's settled in at 20, which is amazing. You've since the IPO made five acquisitions of companies. It's 3,000 employees, 25,000 customers doing probably... The stat that I have is about 900 million of revenue, but it's probably at about a billion of revenue today. Certainly by the time this thing airs, it'll be right there. Growing 60% year over year, just a hair under 40% profitable, spitting out cash. It is a secret weapon of a business. 1,500 customers with an ACV of over 100K. It's really, really impressive, this business. It is incredible. And the markets have rewarded you for that. How weird was it 
going public. How weird was it when that was the day that Henry finally got his validation? Like, this is it. My team got it. Meanwhile, the world, that was the darkest of days, right? Did you think about canceling? Like, what was, what was happening? Yeah, so we actually were supposed to IPO March 26th. That was the actual IPO day. And so we thought about canceling. And so we canceled on March 26th. And then we decided- and approaching March 26th before you canceled it, are you like, are you kidding me? There's this like terrible- <laughs> I knew it. I knew this was gonna yeah, happen. Like, yeah. I, knew I, <laughs> I knew I couldn't get the validation. Just, I knew it. There's this moment where we have an all hands meeting about the IPO and I was like, unless the coronavirus gets us. <laughs> and it was like, I didn't even, it was like Feb- end of February and my head it wasn't around it. So we delay it and then we IPO and you know, I'm doing it in my house. Can't even go to New York. Can't go to New York. I actually try. I actually like really pressed the NASDAQ about it. They were very uncomfortable. Mm. If you want to come, you can, but it's not going to be like cool. You're not going to like it. I talked to my doctor about it. What are the risks? Should I go? Ultimately said no. So did it all virtually. And I'm in my house, which was great because a roadshow for an IPO is a pretty grueling process when you're on the road. It's 10 days of bouncing around cities and taking eight meetings a day. The bankers are like PJing you around, taking you to different cities to meet with people that'll invest at the IPO. Yes, exactly. And it's 10 days of you're in New York and then you're in San Francisco and then you're in Chicago and you're in Toronto and you're just meeting all of these investors. And it's pretty grueling and you're away from your family. Instead, I did it via Zoom in my office and I could finish the day, walk outside. It was sunny in Portland Mm -hmm. during June and I could walk out and be with my daughter and my wife was opening the pool at the end of the day. So it was like a great thing to come home to each day or to finish workout each day. And then the IPO happens and we threw a 20 person COVID friendly party in the middle of the pandemic violated like every rule. And had just our closest friends and the people who built the business together there that night. We cooked and it was great. Do you ever get insecure about not being, in quotes, technical founder, a product founder? First of all, I am a product founder. Yeah. I'm just not an engineering founder. Right. But everyone conflates those to be the same thing. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, today our CTO Near is like an incredible partner for me. Yeah. He's technical and has scaled his organization. So it's like really great to have somebody like that by my side. I think there was a moment like last week where I was thinking through every job that I've done at Zoom Info. And I've literally done every job at Zoom Info. I was the chief financial officer. I did accounts payable, accounts receivable. I did customer success, account management. I did sales. I did taxes. I did. I was the general counsel. I did everything. There's not a job at Zoom Info I didn't do except I never wrote a line of code. I've never written a line of code for Zoom Info. I've been Salesforce administrator, but I've never written code. It doesn't bother me. I'd love to learn how to code because I think it would bring me some value in understanding the complexities of building software, but I'm not insecure about not knowing how to code. I talked to the Chorus team Uh and I said, how was the process of getting acquired by Zoom Info and Henry? And (laughs) you said you would have thought this guy was the CRO of Chorus, the way that he came in. And he didn't say, here's what's going on. Here's why I think we can be partners. Here's why I think it's strategic. He was like, we need this business in order for us to have the terminal value that I think we can have. We need it. And here is why. And you went into the integration points. You deeply, deeply understood that business. Super cool. And now, to this point, you use that product, Chorus, every week you listen into some sales team's calls to figure out who is the next rain king that may come and upset our business. So instead of you going out and doing six sales calls, the way that you stay on the pulse and beat of this company is using your own product. Is that right? Yeah. Is that all right? right? Yeah, that's right. We got a diligence letter from one of our investors the other week and they're like, here are a handful of competitors you should pay attention to. It's like, okay, let me go hear how they're coming up on course calls. And I could go type in the name of the competitor. I see every time, how frequently, what the time series graph looks like. And then I can listen to how customers are talking about those competitors and have a sense for, is it a real risk? What kind of risk is it? The course acquisition was really interesting because it was a big acquisition. Seven, 800 million? It was $575 million, but it included $125 million of a tax benefit. And so really it was $450 million. 
but I knew it was going to be a transformational moment in how people thought about Zoom Info, that this was going to make it really clear that we weren't just going to be a data company, but that we were going to build a go-to-market revenue operating system. And then I also know that that space is highly competitive and Chorus had built a great product, but hadn't built a go-to-market motion to match it. And so there was this perception issue in the market that said, like, Chorus is a number two, but it wasn't a number two because of the product. The company had 14 patents on their transcription and AI capabilities. They had a, the best product owner I've ever met. And so I had to be really convicted that I could go take this product and then take it out to market and not have a subpar experience for our customers. So I knew how we were going to do that backwards and forwards. One of the other things that you do twice a year, you pretend like you are the new CEO that was hired into the company. The board replaced you. You are the new Henry. And you go around doing a 30, 60, 90 and then writing a letter. Do you write a letter or are you just basically do an evaluation of the entire business as if you've never been in the business before? Yeah, I write a memo. A memo. I write a memo out to the executive team, but it looks like it's going to the board. Every year? Every year I do it twice. And it basically says, hello, aren't you glad you hired me? Wait till you see the mess that Henry left in this place. Don't worry, I'm going to clean it all up. Here they are. This, 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 this. Everybody knows. <laughs> like Everybody knows those things are real. And then we start fixing those things together. What do you think that exercise does for the business and for you? For me, it makes me articulate the areas that are in my head yeah. that need fixing. And then for the business, it gets everybody aligned around like, these are the areas that we're not best in class. Like I say this all the time, I'm not the CEO or founder who's going to pontificate about what technology is going to be like 10 years from now and like the digital sales world is going to change so much in 10 years. And that's why this technology that we're building today is going to drive that. That's not my gig. Like I can do it because I trained myself to do it over the last couple of years because investors really want to hear much more than like, hey, I'm building a great business. But what I really am focused on is how do I build a company where if you came into it tomorrow and you went to any department in the business, you would go, oh my God, that is the best run accounts receivable department, engineering department, product marketing department, product management department, sales department that I've ever seen at any company. I've never seen something better run than that. And that's what I want for Zoom Info. And I'm pretty confident that if I achieve that and I would feel like that, I would go look at any of those departments and tell you they're the best run, that we're going to build an amazing company that's around forever. Have you read The Score Takes Care of Itself by Bill Walsh? No. You should Sounds read. like what I just said. You should read it. It is Bill Walsh, legendary Niners coach that came in when the organization was absolute shit. And of course, you're literally taking notes on this right now. And I, I guarantee you're going to read this and probably send me notes on it afterwards and tell me how much of an idiot I am and how this guy sucks. But nonetheless, he inherited the Niners as the worst franchise in the NFL. The first thing that he did was he went to the receptionist and he taught her how the 49ers answer the phone. And then he went to the team and he taught them how to tie their shoelaces. The point of the story is that the inputs matter. Mm -hmm. And if you take care of the details every day, the score takes care of itself. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to start saying it like that. Yeah. It's a good perspective, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. When was the last time you were like genuinely happy? <laughs> I mean this like super sincerely. So I'm happy all the time when I'm with my daughter and with my wife one-on-one. The yeah. other day, my daughter and I went to Target together. It was like the best experience. She's six. She's like talking to me about her school and telling me about And are friends. you present in that moment oh, away, yeah. away from the business? That's probably that. And if I'm on vacation with my wife are probably the only times I'm really present. Yeah. And I am away from the business. I'm not thinking about the business. I'm yeah. just like in those moments. Yeah. So with my daughter, the job is hard. A different variation of that question is like, is it fun? This is not fun. No, it's not it's fun. It's not fun. No, it's not fun. And you know what? It's as if you're not allowed to say that. Because yeah. you're a successful company and a successful CEO, for some reason it's taboo to say that. It's so hard. It is hard. And so it's never fun. It is challenging yeah. and fulfilling in a lot of ways, but it's never really fun. But I do find 
more lately than before, I'll be in a conversation, but my head is running on some other thing at Zoom Info. And I come back in and I'm like, oh, I'm lost in the conversation because I was just like fixating on some Zoom Info thing. I've got to get better at that. Or like when you're showering and I do this all the time, I put body wash on twice or shampoo on twice because I'm just (laughs) so somewhere else (laughs) that I have no idea what I just did. I just sit there and be like, did I even, did I put soap on myself? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) totally. Totally. So happy is a more interesting question because I am really genuinely happy when I'm with my family, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, when I have one-on-one time with my wife or my daughter, those are really great moments. And I am really happy in those moments, but fun is a different. Someone that's so ambitious and so in the details of their business. I don't think you're any further away from any of the details of a $20 billion Zoom info as you were a $2 Zoom info, discover org at the time. I really don't. I think you're just as invested. Through that process, how did you manage the pull of these forces? Like I've heard you say that you used to feel guilty. Maybe you still do about working out because Mm -hmm. then you're not working, Mm -hmm. you know? So like that pull, (laughs) taking care of yourself and then your family and work, what usually falls down first in these equations of your stack rank of priorities? The stack rank is really like, how am I going to be the best CEO, the best father, and the best dad yeah. in the world? Like, how do you accomplish doing all three yes. of those things? And so where you cut is you have to cut work because you can give 24-7 to work, especially at this size. I could take calls midnight, 1 a.m., <laughs> 2 a.m. People will sit, set up calls with me. We have an Israeli office, a London office. Yeah. We have customers all around the world. Or you could just sit on chorus listening to calls. Yeah, I could just I could work 24 hours a day. There's no shortage of work. And so you have to figure out the line. Yeah. Because that one will take up all of your time. It will find a way to take up all of your time. And this goes into this like work-life balance thing, which I think I've it's been a little bit overdone. Because I think when people think about work-life balance, they just think like less work. Like, how do I just do less work? And it's a little bit less about less work. And it's a little bit more about at what point during work do I feel like I'm fulfilled? I've done enough. I'm not going to walk away from a day feeling like I didn't give it my all. And then I can feel better about the time that I spend with my wife or with my daughter. And so I've created a construct that says, hey, when I'm in town, I will never not be there when my daughter wakes up. I take her to school with my wife, and then I'm always going to be there at the end of the day before she goes to bed. Right now, we're in San Francisco, and I'm on a nine-night trip. And I know that I'm not going to see my wife and my daughter for nine nights, but I'm not going to feel bad about it during those nine nights because I've made a hard commitment on the nights that I am in town with her. I'm never going to go to an investment banking dinner or do happy hour. You just don't compromise on that. I just do not compromise on that ever. What other things do you do? I exercise every day. Now you do. Yeah. Like six days a week. That changed though. That changed for sure. Do you wish you did that earlier? Yes, of course. You say, of course, because it turns out it makes you more effective as a worker. Yeah. It puts me in a better and mental state. as a father state. and as yeah. a husband. Totally. And once i flipped from exercising because I thought it would make me look better to exercising because I know it makes me feel better. I don't ever want to miss a day of exercise. Puts me in a much better mental state than I could be otherwise. You know, and then there's like, here's a good work-life balance thing on the other side. I know that on vacation, if I don't check my email and be connected at least a little bit to work, kind of like a pressure cooker. I get all this pressure about what's going on. And if I don't release the valve, then everything for the whole day is a mess. And so on vacations, I tell my wife, we're going to do stuff in the morning and then I need an hour and a half. Let me like open the top of the pressure cooker, let the pressure out. And then the rest of the day, I'm fine again. And I can check at the end of the night what's going on. But if I try to pretend then you're not present in the morning or in the afternoon. Yeah, if I try to pretend that way, then I'm not present in the morning and I'm not present in the afternoon. And so I think that's a pretty good example of what work-life balance really is. I need to get a little bit of that work so that I can be better on the life side. One perfect summation of what I think you are, and your board member said this, is that Henry doesn't believe in the same laws of physics as everyone else. He only believes in forward motion. So... Anyway, man, I think it's a great place to wrap it. I really appreciate your time and I can't wait to see what places you move forward in. I just can't wait. I wrap all these the same. Are you hiring? 
what are you hiring for? I assume you're hiring for everything because it's like most of my guests are. Any key roles that you want to shout out? Yeah, we are hiring for everything. We're hiring in product and engineering and sales and account management and customer success. All of those roles are really important. What I would tell you is this is a really great place to work today. If you're looking for an opportunity to grow yourself, grow professionally, to learn new skills, to move around a company that's growing incredibly fast, I really don't think there's a better place to work than Zoom Info. And so come check us out. What's the best way to get a hold of you or check you out? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. It's Henry L. Shuck. Or you could shoot me an email. It's just henry.shuck at zoominfo.com. Otherwise, go to the careers page. Otherwise, go to the careers page. Yeah. Last question. What does the word grit mean to you? To me, it means fixating on the areas of improvement and then improving them constantly. Somehow that answer does not surprise me at all. Henry, thank you. Thank you, Juven. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.